the best things in life for free. If you subscribe to The Spectator, you'll get a whole month for free. And after that, you'll only pay a pound for full access to our website and to our app. And if you want to pay two pounds, you'll get our magazine too. To claim this offer, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash free. Welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. And I'm Olivia Potts. And today we're delighted to be joined by Sir Nicholas Moston, a British High Court judge who left the bench just a few weeks ago following a long and distinguished career. In 2020, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's and went on to co-create the cult podcast Movers and Shakers, along with Jeremy Paxman and other friends of theirs with the disease. Nicholas, welcome to Table Talk. I'm very happy to be here. Um, Nicholas, we're going to start where we always do, at the beginning, and ask you, what are your very earliest memories of food? <laughs> I I knew this question was coming because you uh, suggested that I listen to some of your previous guests, and I have thought long and hard about this. And the memory is in Nigeria, where I was aged... Five, I think, in about 1962. That was only two years after independence, so it had a sort of strange colonial um, Evelyn War atmosphere about it, and we lived in a grand house. And the cook brought in this great silver salver and lifted the... Are they called salvers? Whatever they're called. And lifted the lid, and there was this enormous yellow vegetable inside, which I'd never seen before. And we all looked at it in amazement, and I was told it was a yam, and that was my, that's my earliest memory of food um, having an, a, an impact on me. That's, I remember that very clearly. And I, I, I enjoyed the yam very much. <laughs> and what were mealtimes like when you were growing up? They were quite formal. Um, my parents try, my parents married incredibly young though. Um, my mother was engaged at Engaged at seventeen, married at eighteen, had me at nineteen. So um, they, she did. They did try. My father was only a couple of years earlier to have formality, but um, chaos seemed only just around the corner in meal times, and in fact, most aspects of my childhood. So, um, but there, there was an attempt to maintain standards. And what so, apart from the yams? What what sort of things would you be eating at these meal times? And and were they all? prepared by the cook or yes they were all prepared by the cook and I remember going and playing with the cook I mean they had about four or five numerous staff there and I remember going into the kitchen and playing with the the staff and uh, being absolutely fascinated by their the food that they prepared for themselves which was different to ours and uh, so that was always very interesting and um, no no it was it was highly formal it was highly formal um I mean, it was only two years after independence. I mean, the place was basically still a British colony. And uh, with all the structures, it sort of described, it's even more read a book, do you remember that book? It's all, it was all those, those strange hierarchies were still maintained. You know, driver, drivers, my, my great uncle at the time, my father's uncle, was this still the GOC of the Nigerian army and lived in this enormous house at, at the end of, called Flagstaff House, surrounded by a great retinue. And and uh, so it was a very uh, strange upbringing, and that's all gone now, which and is a good thing. 
And did your did your mother like to cook when she had the had the chance? She did. She did like to cook, and she was a very good cook. And she was able to produce food effort, effort very good food effortlessly. Um, it was all quite traditional food, but there was never a drama about it. And um, it was always it was always well. I say, it, it, for, it, for as long as she was um, not as long as she was how would I put this without disrespecting her as long as she was not um, behaving in a reckless way um, food was prepared good food was prepared and um, it was extremely um, good to eat and did she did she teach you to cook anything ah, yes <laughs> I mean the, the life of a child middle class child um, you know, brought up in Africa and then brought back and sent to prep school. You'll no doubt come to that. Um, by the time I got to my second year at Bristol, I had never lived independently. I'd only lived either in institutions where the food was institutional or at home. And so at the be beginning of my second year at university, I rented a flat. And this was the first time that I was going to have to plough my own culinary furrow. And I remember my mother coming down and with me to establish me in this flat. And she said to me, Nikki, because that was the way we were called, I was called in the family. Um, she said, I'm going to um, teach you three essential life skills, three essential life skills, with which you will be, a, the world will be your oyster and you will nothing, and life will hold no terrors at all. And these are the three essential life skills. And they are as follows. Number one, how to clean your lavatory. Number two, how to make gravy. And number three, how to make a white sauce. Now, I'm not, I'm not as it happens, they, those three uh, have served me in good stead, although I think white sauce, you don't make white sauce very often now. One doesn't. I mean, I can't remember making a white sauce in the last five years, actually. But, um, <laughs> but um, it, it, back, there, back in the day, one used to make one. Well, and then the, the other thing she taught me to cook, she said, very versatile, very versatile um, dish to prepare is bolognese. She said, because it can be used in so many different ways. It can be used, of course, as the name suggests, as bolognese. It can be used as cottage pie. It can be used even to stuff a marrow. And it can be used just neat. And it's an extremely useful, um, an extremely useful thing to prepare. You can prepare it in bulk at the beginning of the week and eat it continuously what's all good advice she said however however i am going to admit that my recipe is regarded as heretical and um and because i put in it sweet corn and um and she said i maintain that this is what makes this is the secret ingredient but you will be told if you serve you will be told when you serve it up people will look at you as if you've committed some terrible moral offense and uh <laughs> and so, as it happens, one one of Liz's greatest friends, who's nothing called Alex, who's nothing if more outspoken, when I told her this, looked at me at, as if I had actually been found in doing some committing some terrible offence of moral degradation, and um, she in fact has now challenged me to a cook off, um, where she will prepare her bolognese, and then I will prepare my bolognese, and then our spouses will blindly assess <laughs> which is. Which is the the better version? But that's basically it was the extent of the culinary education I had, which has, has served me in quite good stead, actually. Yeah, it's a pretty good repertoire for for what a nineteen year old boy at that point. There was then the key, the the, the absolute the pièce de résistance was of my mother was uh, which was her signature dish was her, was a pudding, which was a trifle, 
And, um, th- and she taught me how to make this. And she said, this will serve you in good stead. And um, I can tell you this story now. I can tell it later. But there's a very, very good story about my mother's trifle and having to search Chelsea high and low for the ingredients. Tell us. Tell us. Her, her trifle has to be made in a very specific way. First of all, it has to have at the base the jam roll. Not Swiss roll, because it can't have that horrible cream in. It's got to be jam roll, okay? And then you have to have tinned raspberries, which are tinned raspberries. They sound quite straightforward, but in the syrup, tinned raspberries in syrup. And then you have to have bananas. And then you have to have custard, but it can't be just nice custard you buy from Marks and Spencer. It has to be bird's custard, because it has to be able to set with a sort of skin on the top. And then you put um, whipped cream on top of that. And then you put almonds on top of that. And I... I so I told Liz that this was my our signature, and she looked at me as if I had gone quite mad. And she said, "You can't eat that. There's there's not there's virtually nothing natural in that at all." And I said, "Yeah, but it does taste absolutely delicious." <laughs> and I said, "As we've got this very good friend of ours called Olivier, who's as the name suggests French, and he's a gourmet and a gourmand, and he's highly critical of English cooking. He regards us all as basically being culinary barbarians." And um, I said, well, I'm going to make this trifle. I said, she said, but he'll, he'll never speak to us again. You can't give him that. And so I said, I am. And so I went out to try and find the ingredients. Now, you try and find those ingredients in Chelsea. I found a jam roll in Earl's Court. I had a bicycle all the way over to Earl's Court. I found one. The only place I could find tin raspberries in the whole of, in the whole of southwest London was in Partridges, which slightly surprised me. Um, I wasn't expecting them to find them there. <laughs> Birds custard. I had to go up to the Tesco's in um, Crom- in the Cromwell Road, but I tracked that down eventually. And um, and then I so I was able to make this. And uh, so then Olivia arrived, and then the pudding was produced. And they all and he was he was given he was given a helping. And we were all looking, thinking maybe this is going to be the end of a beautiful relationship with horror. As he put a spoonful in his mouth, and there was a silence. And then he pronounced it to be delicia. And had a second helping. So there you are. Oh, you've done your bit for French Anglo relations on the food front, Nick. Perhaps, I mean, perhaps you don't even want to talk about school food. It was so disgusting. But just to drag you back slightly, what, what, do you have any happy memories of school food? No, none at all. It was, I mean, to think our parents actually paid to send us to these places. I mean, it is, I mean, it, it, the, the, the school made the school in decline and fall look like an absolute oasis of, of um, responsibility and civility. It was the most dreadful school in all its respects, the way that we were treated. Um, the, I mean, down to the fact there was no heating, right? And, uh, and, and the staff were, however I say this, odd. And um, the food was absolutely disgusting. And we, there's a little WhatsApp group of us, five of us, we call ourselves Morton Hall Survivors. Um, and uh, we were, I, I mentioned that I was going on this, and they were, we were all feeling, being made feel almost virtually sick thinking about the food of this, I mean, I can't bear to describe it, this pig's liver that we produced, grey pig's liver with tubes running through it, which were big enough to put a pencil uh, through Yes. <laughs> I think that might be we, the most disgusting description of food we've had on this podcast. I've hardly got going yet. <laughs> The scrambled eggs, the scrambled eggs were, we found this because we hunt, went and hunted it, was a <laughs> remaindered supply of powdered eggs from the war. It was over 20 years old, the eggs were. Yeah. It was quite the most... And the bread and butter pudding, I can't tell you, I remember a boy being sick in eating it and then being made to sit there and not allowed to leave until he'd, his plate had been cleared, which he'd vomited into. I mean, it's, it was 
I mean, I tell you that if food like that and conditions like that were meted out in a prison or in a young offenders institute, there would be a Human Rights Act challenge successfully, in my opinion. There would. It would be cruel and unusual punishment. And um, it's, uh, it, was, I, I, it was the most, um, it was the most de- psychologically disturbing place. And I, how, up my, how our parents could have uh, sent us to such a place and paid money for it is quite beyond me. Was Ampleforth any better? Uh, the other Ampleforth was pretty good, actually, um, the, because we were, didn't have central feeding. The feeding was in houses of 60. So that makes always makes a difference. But, um, of course, if you when you arrived and you were on the bottom table, but one thing that they did do is that you had to take it in turns to carve. So you learned how to carve, which is a useful skill as well. Um, if you were on the bottom table... Um, by the time the food was served with you, they were finishing on the top table. And so you had learned, you learned to eat really, really quickly. And so it, it's a feature of, I think, most, most um, people who've been to the public schools is that they all bolt their food because, they, because <laughs> you just get and it's a matter of seconds before the next course is bought. And then the, pud- and then the pudding's been cleared away and everybody's leaving. And so um, and then you, you, know, you put up with that. And then, of course, by the time that you made your way up the ladder and it wasn't applying to you, there was no reason why it shouldn't apply to people at the bottom of the ladder. So um, you, did, you did, everybody ate extremely quickly, but the food was fine down It was absolutely fine. And then you went on to Bristol. We know you had your bolognese and your trifle to hand. What, what, what are your other memories of food during that time of your life? Well, I mean, I, mean, I, I, I only have a vaguest memory of the food in the first year when I was in a hall of residence. And then the next two years, um, the, the, I told you about my, my mother's skills. And then in the third year, I was in sharing a house with uh, some marvellous people. And we used to take it in comp turns. We had to take in turns to to um, prepare the food. And the, the thing was to try and make it as cheap as possible. And I do remember that a very good friend of mine called Anna Shaw, who married her, went on, who was Greek, managed to make a moussaka uh, for a whole week, which cost 50p a head for the whole week. So, <laughs> so, so I mean, I'm sure it hasn't really changed, is that you have a limited amount of funds. And so the place where you would make your economies, because you probably didn't make much economies in drinking, is that would be on your food, but you know, there was still uh, there was a skill in being able to eke out um, what was the um, allowance or the deemed allowance to. to but I, I, we all ate we we ate we ate well at Bristol. I remember, and then and then it was uh, then I was married shortly after I left Bristol. So and then my and my wife was a very good cook. So I've, I've been fortunate in that. And you were called to the bar in nineteen eighty one when. When you were um, training for the bar, you presumably had a number of qualifying sessions that you you had to attend. Oh yes, and we had to eat lots. No, I mean you, you thirty. We had to eat thirty. Yeah, we had to eat thirty. Twenty before you were called, and ten after. Right. Yeah. It was yeah. Uh, twelve. Felt like a lot when I did it. So that that sounds yeah. like an awful yeah. lot. Can yeah. you tell us? It was middle middle temple. You were. In, yeah. You remember? Tell yeah. us. Tell us about those qualifying sessions. Well, you had to sit in messes. Do you remember? You yes, sit, you had to sit in messes of four, and you got a messes of four, and you got half a bottle, you got a bottle of wine and half a bottle of port for each mess, and um, you would try and uh, you'd work out which of the <laughs> you'd work out which of the barristers didn't drink for religious or cultural reasons, and you'd go and sit with them. <laughs> this this sounds very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> all all tactical, all strategic. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, those were good. They, I approved of the dinners. I mean, I remember going there and, you know, people like Lord Roskill and Lord Diplock would come and sit and talk to you. And, I, you know, I try and do that myself. And that was, that was highly, highly influential on an impressionable young barrister to be able to be sitting with these legal greats. I mean, of course, it sounds too Barchester for words for your listeners. But, I mean, I mean to be able to sit down next to Lord Diplock <laughs> and, you know, at, at one of these one of these qualifying sessions was a great privilege and, and you know and how how has the experience differed as going in as you know one of the greats or as a, as a bencher what how how does the food differ first of all are you getting the better stuff yeah we uh, no we all eat the same food fine you know well i can't remember that i, I don't know whether they have better food on the high table but um we don't, when when we sit on the high table we'd have the same as as they sit uh, this as the um, young barristers have, and uh, and then we mingle with them. And uh, yes, I'm going in the week after next to one with uh, where they're having a dinner for all the scholars because my most recent judicial assistant got a scholarship, and they have a very good dinner for all the scholars. And um, you know, one has tried to do as much as that as, as one can. I don't do as much as I should, but now I'm retired, um, I will be able to do more um, con- contribution to the inn than I have been doing. And Nicholas, during your days when you were in court, what what what's the food like in that sort of situation? Where would you be eating? Just a sandwich. Oh, just a sandwich. I, I, yeah, some people some people go down and eat in the hall in the in the inns of court, but I, I I don't do that because I always used to work during lunch. Always was working during lunch. Um, so oh, I'm subject, of course, to what you're going to ask me about, which is <laughs> um, when you're out on circuit and you're in judges' lodgings, which is where one organised because at home. Uh, <laughs> At home, um, I have. I'm very lucky to be married to the most wonderful woman in the world, who is very concerned about um, my diet. She she accepts that I'm not a heavy drinker, but I am a heavy eater, and um, she, she refers to my midriff as the, as the massive central. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so um, I I'm, and the metaphor we use is that I'm on a diet of benacol and dust. Um, when I'm at home so when I escape when I this was in the part this is now all history but when I go out to the judge's lodgings that is the place where you can organize because the, the, it's, the judge's lodgings um, you have wonderful cooks there and they will cook whatever you want and so that is where I have my comfort food <laughs> so what are you ordering in those circumstances oh, what's comfort food for you I can't tell you how delicious so I, the on my birthday, which was the last night, the last night I was going to spend in judges' lodgings in my career, right? So it was coming to an end. It was in Swansea, my favourite lodgings, where they looked after me wonderfully over the years. Been there fourteen times, and tried some very difficult cases down there, um, which is one of the reasons why you wouldn't. It would not be appropriate for judges to go to a hotel. I'll just make sure I make that point. I mean, the idea that you could end up, you know, be Sitting, having at a dining room table next door to one of the uh, defendants, <laughs> um, but um, so I was in Swansea and it was my my birthday and I had a, 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 I held a party for all the local judiciary and all um, people who looked after me as high sheriffs and I thought I'm going to have the my the acme of the very acme of comfort food. And so the menu was coronation chicken, <laughs> followed by Eden mess. <laughs> by cheese now what could be better than that uh, for 30 for 30 people and it also means that um for breakfast um i can have um 
proper full English on three days a week and keep us on Friday. So, I mean, as you can see, this is just absolutely perfect. <laughs> and uh, so that's, so that is, when you ask me the question of, um, as a as a professional, I mean, food doesn't really feature at all, except when I, you know, I was able to eat very well out in at the judges' lodgings. Next, you, you during your career, you you earned a, f a few notable nicknames. One of which was Mister Payout, and also Moston Powers, according to our notes. Yeah, just, <laughs> did all invented by the yes? Tablets. No. Did, 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 would you would after a after a case? Do you have would you ever go out with your clients to celebrate, or is that is that sort of frowned upon in, in the? Oh, um, I, I did occasionally. I did it once or twice. Um, I never, I never, it's interesting. I never formed a friendship with a client. I never, I mean, you got on very well with them, but then you said goodbye because, it was, because the relationship fundamentally is professional. And I never, I couldn't, would not have counted any client as a friend. Um, and yeah, sometimes, sometimes you would go out if you'd had a great victory. Uh, but I, I always thought that was rather, um, I thought that was rather inappropriate, really. But I saw it was it was a handful of occasions. But um, no, I didn't do that. No. You uh, you count hunting as one of your your hobbies. Um, yeah, as I said, it, yeah, can't do it's, you can't you can't hunt. No, but yeah. are you a, are you a fan of game as as a as a food, or was it was it hunting as a as a pastime that that mainly appealed to you? Well, I I I, I used to. <laughs> I have to say hunting. I mean, I you, you went out until the ban, and then I went. I made, it was very clear after the ban that when I went out, it was they were only drag hunting. But before the ban, I never saw a kill ever, not once. Um, maybe I was just too slow at the back, but uh, but I never saw, and I never even heard of one. I mean, I think I may have heard one, but and then the ban came, and I was very very careful that uh, that hunting I did was lawful. Now I only went out with drag hunting. But even now, I think it's um, it's become it's become. I don't think it's reasonable, but it has become now unacceptable to be even involved in drag hunting. I don't I don't understand why, but um, so I'm going to give that up as well. Have given that up. So, um, so but shooting, I tried to do that. Um, I am. Um, my shotgun certificate came up for renewal. I didn't even try to renew it. I thought with with a Parkinson's tremor, there's no way they're going to let me renew that. So <laughs> I think that's a good thing. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and so do I like game? Not particularly. Nicholas, tell us about your Parkinson's diagnosis and perhaps particularly kind of how it's affected what you eat and drink, or even if it has affected what you eat, what you eat and drink. Yes, Um the uh, part, I was diagnosed in May twenty, and um, I was went put on a drug regime immediately. And you all understand that the effect of Parkinson's is that neurons that produce dopamine are dying in my brain. Well, they're dying in yours, but they're dying at a much faster rate in mine. And um, then, therefore, they you have to have levodopa, which is uh, basically dopamine substitute, and um, you you have to be careful about what you eat because for two because if you eat incorrectly it will stop the levodopa working. Um, also, there are foods that you can eat which will improve uh, matters for you symptomatically because they will reduce neuro neuroinflammation neuroinflammation. So um, 
And then there are also other ones, which for reasons that nobody quite understands, that if you eat a lot of flavonoids, not too much, more than average amount of flavonoids, it seems to extend life expectancy. Although I have to say an extra couple of years in a wheelchair. I mean, it's not really a great dividend. So the, the important thing is, I mean, without going into the science of it, we are going to have a episode shortly on diet when we will have some good uh, good expert talking about this is basically you should have a mediterranean diet you should eat a mediterranean diet this um mean mediterranean diet um will mean and what's more you mustn't you must take your levodopa either before or after you eat on an empty on an empty stomach you must not take it at the same time as an empty stomach because it will not work and if you take it at the same time as you as cheese or dairy products it definitely will not work at all and so you will have it will it, you will go off very, very badly and you will start feeling quite odd so um the, the, so you must you must be low in protein high in um mediterranean star vegetables high in flavonoids which are dark vegetables and the key and you've got to have more than average vitamin c and more than average b12 um, those are the thing. Those are the key things. And then the final thing is you must take uh, more probiotics. So I mean, you can do those naturally with that ghastly stuff, kimchi and things like that. But you just buy this stuff called Simpro, which is in the fridge, and that that seems to the probiotics does seem to reduce neural inf inflammation. And um, so your your diet can make a considerable difference to how you your um your experience of it. I mean. The, the doctor who's going to appear on our, our show, um, Dr. Batsu, says, she was talking to a, a patient the other day, he said, it's very odd, he said, the, the levodopa works in the morning and it works in the evening, but not the one I take at lunchtime. She said, well, have you thought about why, why it doesn't work at lunchtime? Are you taking it at the same time you're eating lunch? Yes, well, there you go. So, um, but, um, so B, B12, I mean, we all have to take B12. Um, it's interesting, beta, where do you get B12 for if you're vegan? I mean, what, do you have to go? Because it's it's normal. B twelve is is the is the um, animal product mm. in animal uh, uh, um, from animal produce, isn't it? Um, I think you have if you're a vegan, you have to get your B twelve from a supplement somewhere. They supplement some vegan products with B twelve. So some plant milks and soy products are supplemented with them anyway. I think. Yes, I think I think that's very. I mean, B twelve is absolutely essential for life. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you can't live without B twelve, but um, B twelve is very very important um, if you've got Parkinson's to keep your levels of that up. So I do. If you try and eat a Mediterranean diet, then that will that will alleviate the symptoms. There's no doubt about that. Um, Nicholas, for, for listeners who perhaps aren't aware of movers and shakers, could you perhaps tell us a little bit about how how and why you went about setting it up? <laughs> well, I, I, I have to, I don't know, I have to admit that it does seem to have been my idea, um, <laughs> because I, I wrote, I was asked to write a piece by a, 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 this marvelous um, editor of something called Spring Chicken, which is a, a, web, a website, principally read, not principally, but largely read by in people in, of a certain age in the north of England. And she said, could you write the official history the, of, of how um, Movers and Shakers came to be? And I said, well, it's obviously going to be Rory's idea. But it wasn't. It was my idea. And um, I, I, he and I had been put together, got together, and we were chewing the fat and having a laugh and having a moan mainly. 
And then we got Jeremy Paxman in, and then he brought in um, Paul Mayhew Archer and Gillian. And we were all sitting around uh, about two uh, in the beginning of 2022. And I said, we should write, this is all very useful, this information we're exchanging with each other. I mean, it's, I, it's certainly opened my eyes about how one can address the problems of Parkinson's. And it's certainly made me much more confident about what the future might hold and how I might address it. I said, we should write a book about it, which Jeremy said, that's the most crap idea I've ever heard. Okay, okay. So that was crushed. And then I said, well, what about doing a, a, a podcast, I think they're called. And, I, and they looked at me and they said, do you know what a podcast is? I said, well, not really. It's a sort of pre-recorded radio program, isn't it? Which hasn't got the uh, tyranny of... Uh, recording schedules and it can you can just put it out when you want this that's more or less it and i said don't you think that would be a, wouldn't that be a good idea <sighs> like this i said come on i mean it'd be quite a good idea and so um i was eventually i was sort of casting around for um because it was made clear to me that the podcast would only be successful if we had a really really good producer as you know because that's why you're also successful the difference between a podcast that is listened to and one that is not listened to is the producer they say um, and uh, your, I, your, I was put in touch with your husband, Lara, who put me in touch with Nick Hilton, who has been, who is a, a man of exceptional talent. Yeah, he, um, he actually used to work at the Spectator as well. So he, um, he did, he did. Trained, and trained um, this is uh, the first time apparently it's been attempted with six principles. Hmm. Um, well, I expect it has been attempted with six principles, but not not that it's uh, commonplace. I mean. It's, <laughs> When we did the first one, you could see him, because this is not being filmed, but you could see him at the end of the table. Like this. <laughs> <laughs> Head in his hands. Where do, you, where do you record it? In the pub. That was Jeremy's idea, because we were meeting in the pub. We said we should carry on doing it in the pub. So we only do it in the pub. We don't, have, we don't do anything like, we don't do anything by video. We don't have any guests by video. You have to be there in the flesh. There has to be the sound of clanking glasses. And um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not saying that, we are not having a natural um, dialogue. We are having a natural dialogue, but the the idea, the sort of the principle that underlay our idea was that we were going to have, a, we were going to extend the pub. People were going to be invited into the pub, and so um, that was it was a very good idea of Jeremy's. And so, um, of course, with five journalists, uh, I mean, they know exactly how to promote it. But even allowing for that. I mean, I'm, I, we've been absolutely taken by surprise about how popular and successful it's been. I mean, I was just listening to Gillian, who was on the Scottish. She's up in. She's uh, one of the um, side effects of the uh, drugs that she's on is that she's become incredibly creative, and she's written a musical, um, which is on at the Edinburgh Fringe at the moment. So I went up on a day trip to Edinburgh to watch it yesterday, and uh, yesterday morning. She was interviewed on the, the, the Scottish local program, and uh, she described um, moves. Not she, the interviewer, whose name I've forgotten, but she, she, her brother is Roddy Forsyth, the famous football commentator in Scotland, who has just been diagnosed with Parkinson's. Um, um, but she described it on the show as the cult podcast. I thought, cult, my God. <laughs> um, but that's how it was described. So we've been absolutely bowled over, and I think the reason that we've been it's been so successful and that we've been so humbled by its success is that it's quite a good story about coping with adversity and um, different ways. I mean, 
you know, Jeremy's at one end of the spectrum, and I would say that Paul and I at the other end of the spectrum. The others are in between, and um, uh, the fact is that we, that those of us who are more Pollyanna-ish, those of us who are more Tiggerish, have been able to help those who feel more gloomy and Eeyore-ish and blue about it. And I said, well, if we can do that in our little group, why can't we do it for the whole Parkinson's world? Why and well, not to necessarily the Parkinson's world. Why can't the way you know the way that um, one addresses this problem, why can't that apply to countless other conditions, you know, the people with cancer and things like this? And, you know, that, you know, if you carpe the diem, as, what, as you, you wouldn't say, or as I say, give the condition the finger, then you can you can live a life which is whatever your condition, which is pretty tolerable. I mean, obviously, if you were going to hospital to have blood transfusions or have your dressings changed on a daily basis, that would be a very difficult thing to have a, a stiff upper lip about. But, I mean, so I'm not saying that it's of universe going to be of universal assistance but i mean so the whole idea was to first of all increase awareness of the condition which is scandalously unstandardized in its treatment throughout the united kingdom and the world everybody seems to deal with it different there's no standards uh, to increase public awareness and then uh, to help people and, and more particularly members of their family people who are caring for them help all of those people to try to cope better that's why the episode entitled Coping was so successful. That then feels very in keeping with the, this idea of it being in the pub, that sort of socialisation almost between the, the 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 principals and the guests coming mm. on. Mm. Um, mm. Do, do, you, do you drink? Do you, I mean, you say the clanking of glasses. Do you have a normal order whilst you're doing that sort of thing? I, 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 only, have, I only have alcohol when it's out. Uh, right. As you can see, because Mark Mardell ruthlessly mocks the judge's pink tonic water has been served. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a cocktail. <laughs> but Jeremy, 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 I mean, there's no, there's no prescription on it, and Jeremy definitely has mm. a, a pint of beer when we do it because we want to make it as natural as we can. But um, so there's, that's fine. But I should say, um, although red wine is a flavonoid. And so, along with chocolate, is the is a good thing. Too much is a bad thing because it stops the levodopa working. Uh, too much of any alcohol is a bad thing. And when I say too much, I mean you really can't have more than a glass or a glass and a half, um, because otherwise it will affect how the levodopa works. Nicholas, when you're at home, do you do you like to cook? What What are the kind of family meal times like nowadays? Well, um, uh, as I yes. Liz and I, um, Liz is a good cook, um, but she is very, very conscious of um, the fact that I am, as I said, a heavy eater. So we eat light at home because we do have a fairly active social life and going out, and going out socially does involve eating. And so, um, but when I have my children round or my grandchildren round, I, it's quite traditional, you know, roast chicken, you know, roast potatoes, um, we had some friends to stay when we were in France who he taught me how to make a forestier sauce. So I'm going to, that's going to be the, the next experiment when I do a roast chicken. It's very delicious, I have to say. And mustard and mushrooms are marvelous. And um, so, uh, and yes, sort of simple, nothing, nothing too complex. And, um, and then uh, the, the, the pudding would be the, the, the sort of staple ones that I've been mentioning before. If that's if I'm having my you know children run for a Sunday lunch, but if it's just us at home, you know it'll be roast vegetables or I don't know, smoked salmon or something like that. I mean, one tries to 
rein in one's greedy instincts. <laughs> now, we, we normally finish by asking guests what their desert island meal is, or I mean, a sort of death row meal, although that always sounds um, a little bit bleak. Mm. Well, the death, I think they're two different ones, aren't they? Some guests feel like we're sort of asking them to survive in a desert island, and that's not really what we're asking. We're asking what ultimate meal, but... I, I mean, have we covered it? Is it coronation chicken and, and eaten? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> the death row meal would be a full English. Right. That, that, that would definitely be a full English. But the desert island one, I've been thinking more, again, reach back to my childhood. As, uh, and I, when I was in my teens, I went out one summer holiday to visit my father, because I was at boarding school, who had moved with BAT from Nigeria to Venezuela and then from Venezuela to El Salvador. And so I went out and he said, Nicky, we're going down to the beach club this week, uh, today, on Saturday, him, my stepmother, Ana Julia, and uh, we're going down to the Deportivo Beach Club, which is on the Pacific. So we drove down to the to the beach club and went in and this enormous sort of luxury club there with sweeping black sand, because the sand is volcanic, volcanic country, and the blue Pacific rolling in, roiling and boiling in. And we positioned ourselves under a, a tree and... Um, <laughs> A, a, we on put on hammocks or, or um, rugs and things, and then a, a band appeared, and he was called El Ostrero. And I said, what's this? And he said, ah, this is part of your education. This is the oyster man, and he will stay here for as long as we want, and we will eat as many oysters as we can. And so we just started eating oysters. <laughs> we ate oysters the whole afternoon. And at the end of it, my father answered it to be a very good day because we ate 10 dozen oysters. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> So my de- so, so my desert <clears throat> my desert island food would be oysters. Delicious. I love oysters. I know you've got an event coming up for movers and shakers. We're having our first live event, which is being which is being um, pro- uh, taking place in the Middle Temple Hall, where I was called to the bar. Okay. We uh, had a maximum of three hundred tickets. We put them on sale. They were sold within an hour, and that's taking place on the sixth of September. We're, it's going to be in two parts. It's going to be as a, 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 basically a podcast session as if we're in the pub, although the pub has moved into the Middle Temple Hall. So, And then the second part is going to be a question and answer session, a question time style. And um, we, it's going to be streamed. And this, none of the, uh, the others, of course, have done events like this. I've done nothing like this. So I shall be very interested to see how it goes. But it's, we're hoping to try and continue the atmosphere of the pub as best we can. But... Um, and we asked people to write in with their questions, and um, we've had some very interesting questions arrive already. So uh, it, it should be a, a, an interesting event. I, that is going to be a one-off. We're going back to the pub. Uh, we've already—I mean, there's no, there's no secret about this. We've already started recording some of the episodes of uh, for series two. So we've got some, we've got some very interesting stuff. We've had a very interesting one about sleep recorded because. Um, disturbed sleep is a very sleep dysfunction is a very common non-motor symptom of Parkinson's we've had one about um, a very good one about bedside manner about how consultant neurologists seem to be universally hopeless at dealing with initial diagnosis and um, we had very interesting discussions about that and then we've got coming up one on diet which we prefigured in this and then we've got one coming up about tech you know, about technological assistance people can get. So we've got some very interesting stuff coming up. And we've got sponsorship for the Holder Series 2 and sponsorship for the Holder Series 3. So that's very exciting. So Brilliant news. Well, Nicholas, thank you very much for joining us on Table Talk. My pleasure. I've enjoyed it very much.
And for any listeners who would like to tune in on the 6th of September to hear Movers and Shakers Live, just go to YouTube and search for Movers and Shakers Live where you'll be able to find the relevant link. Or alternatively, you can also look on the Spectators website where you'll also find a link. Thank you for joining us on the Spectators Food and Drink podcast. For more recipes, food history, stories and drinks, you can head to the Spectator website. Yeah.